Hello and welcome everyone to Conversations in Digital Learning, a podcast produced by the Digital Learning Collaborative, or more commonly known as the DLC. The DLC is a membership group dedicated to exploring, producing, and disseminating data, information, news, and best practices in digital learning. My name is Katherine Kennedy, and I'm your host for today's show. Before we get started, I'd like to share a quick disclaimer. We invite a variety of guests to join our podcasts. Their views are not necessarily representative of the Digital Learning Collaborative or its members. We are excited to have Nick Sproul join us today. Nick serves as the Director of High School Review for the NCAA Eligibility Center. Nick will be talking to us about the NCAA's approval process for courses. With that, let's jump in. Nick, thank you so much again for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it, and we're really excited to have you on the show. Thank you uh, for the invitation to be on here. It's truly our pleasure. Could you start off with a bit of the history of the NCAA approval process? How did that come about, and how does that fit into the larger mission for NCAA? The mission of the NCAA, at least in part, is to ensure that student-athletes have a meaningful academic experience. There's a, there's a commercial that used to run that would say there are over 400,000 NCAA student-athletes, and almost all of them will go pro in something other than sports. And if you Google NCAA probability of going pro, there's some incredible data on our research website about the percentage of students who end up playing professionally. It's such a small number that it's critical. Students graduate with a meaningful college degree that prepares them for life after they have been a student-athlete. Where we come into play is that uh, we know from our research, and, and by the way, from a research perspective, we have hundreds of thousands of student athletes coming through our system, and we analyze the data to try to find out what the best predictors are of the college graduation rate, the progress toward the degree, the first year success. And so we actually look to the high school record as the beginning step of that trajectory. Um, so students have to be academically eligible coming out of high school. You can think of the NCAA Eligibility Center, which which is the department that I work in within the NCAA, is like a giant office of admissions for about 100,000 prospective student-athletes each year. We serve between 30 to 35,000 high schools, working with them to, to figure out what counts in this process. So just very briefly, in order to be eligible, students have to earn a certain number of what are called core courses. They have to have a certain GPA within those core courses and then they have to have a qualifying SAT or ACT based on the core course GPA that they earned in those 16 core courses. My department, High School Review, uh, within the Eligibility Center, is tasked with determining what counts in that process. What is a core course? So we review high schools, high school programs, and high school courses and maintain lists uh, and account high school accounts so that students, families, recruiting coaches know which high school courses will count in the calculation of that student's initial eligibility. Thanks, Nick. Just a really quick clarification question. So this review process does not include any delivery model distinction like blended, online, et cetera. Is that right? Yeah. So actually, you can think of it as a funnel. We start at what we call the high school account level. And really what we're looking at there is the high school valid. And that's a funny place to start because, believe it or not, there are schools that aren't schools. There's a really nasty underbelly of bad actor adults who try to create 
false schools to get kids through the system. And so we do review, investigate, conduct unannounced site visits of schools where we believe, whether they're new or existing schools within our system, uh, where we believe that there are issues related to quality control and integrity of information related to school policies and operations, curriculum instruction and assessment, or other areas that may be relevant. So there's that account level. Is it actually a school, <laughs> which again, sounds preposterous to most people, but, but that's where we start. From there, we, we drill down to what we call kind of the program level. And that's where we get into questions about what's the delivery model. Are these considered, uh, in our vernacular, traditional courses or non-traditional courses? And then from there, we get down to the course level to determine whether the course aligns to the criteria for review for core courses. And I'm happy to talk about any of those variables along the way. Definitely at some point getting into the criteria would be great. At this point, though, could you talk a little bit more about why NCAA started looking into online courses? Yeah, sure. Uh, So it was probably 2008, 2009. So 10 years ago or so, our certification staff began seeing designations on course titles that were unfamiliar. So whenever they see something on a course title, maybe it's an asterisk, maybe it was something that says OL next to the course title. If we don't already have something in our database for that school alerting us to what that means, we will ask the question. So again, 10, 10 years ago or so we began asking high schools to tell us what CR means, for example, or NN. And they would say, oh, that's our Novanet program, or that's our credit recovery program, or that's our Panther Pride program. You know, they all sorts of different names. And we'd say, okay, well, tell us a little bit more. And, and they'd say, oh, we'll just send you these in, of course, printouts. And we began receiving a lot of evidence and a lot of data showing students who were completing a semester's worth or even a year's worth of courses in a matter of weeks, days, hours. And in one extreme case, I saw a student who who received a semester's worth of Algebra 2 credit for one minute of being in the course. That is absolutely crazy. Right. And, and, you know, again, think about this back then. This was kind of when online learning was very nascent. It was not mainstream yet at the secondary or the post-secondary level. People were still very suspicious and cautious about it. And so as we shared some of this data with our membership, there was obvious concern, right? And I should probably add, too, we were seeing printouts that included assessments that were really, really low levels of rigor. For example, programs that had true-false assessments where if a student got the true-false question wrong on their first try, they could try it again and still get 80% of the points for that question. And so we took this information to our membership, and it's probably worth sharing here very briefly that the NCAA is a membership-driven organization, so I, as a staff member, I have no power or authority to change rules, to create rules. That's all done by our membership and the committee structure that exists. So we took this to our committees and said, hey, this is a concern. What do we do? And at the time, we reached out to Susan Patrick at INACOL and Allison Powell. And they were extremely helpful in those early days to, to help us learn to know and understand the landscape of the emerging world of, of online and blended learning. And, and they obviously were concerned. And so we tried to think, what's what do we do? What's the best way to address this concern? Because obviously, these students were, were not 
not putting themselves in a position to be successful in college, taking courses in this manner. And ultimately, that's what this is all focused on, is ensuring that these students can succeed at a four-year college or university. There were some folks at the time who wanted to just completely prohibit online learning in the NCAA eligibility process. And thankfully, cooler heads prevailed. And we said, no, 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 we need to balance innovation in the field, but also guard against ways in which these types of programs and courses can be abused. So let's set up a framework, not necessarily to ensure quality, but to guard against those abuses that we observed. So that's that's kind of the history and the context. And then we developed a review process that was based on those rules that were adopted in 2010 to help guard against some of the concerns that we had seen. That's great. So can you talk a little bit about that approval process? Absolutely. It has changed and evolved over the years. And I think it's probably worth sharing with your audience. We continue to attend conferences and webinars and events so that we are keeping our finger on the pulse of what's happening in the field. And as things have emerged, we have tried to adapt our processes to be more responsive to those changes. It's mostly a narrative process, meaning that we send a questionnaire to schools and programs, asking them to talk about the role of the instructor, pacing and time frame for completion sharing information about assessments and the overall instructional model. When those responses come back in, oftentimes we will reach back out to the school to clarify and make sure we have an accurate understanding of their program, and then we'll render a decision. And certainly, uh, Catherine, we can talk about what the, what the actual criteria are and what the requirements are. Yeah, if you want to jump into the criteria, that would be great. Sure. The two primary points that are part of the NCAA legislation relates to the role of the instructor and the time frame for completion. So the first requirement related to the role of the instructor is that the program must have ongoing and regular teacher-initiated access and interaction between the student and the instructor throughout the duration of the course for the purposes of teaching, evaluating, and providing assistance. And so I probably should say a minute, we don't ever want to be in a position where we are prescribing how teachers teach or how programs set up their instructional models, but Sometimes it's easier for us to talk about what doesn't meet our requirements. And so we'll, we will often say that a help desk model, where the only interaction between students and instructors, if it's only when the student needs help, that's not a model that would be approved. If the teacher of record is in name only, but their actual interaction is with the equivalent of a study hall monitor in the room, that also wouldn't be approved. In terms of the nature of the instruction, if it is just good job, keep it up, way to go, and there's no actual instruction based on, for example, student assessment, probably not a model that would be improved. Those are ways that we have learned to talk about our criteria about what doesn't get approved rather than trying to tell schools and programs how they should design their programs in order to be approved. 
The other piece that I mentioned was minimum time frame. So the legislation requires schools and programs to have a minimum and a maximum time frame for completion of a course. Candidly, we really don't care what the maximum time frame for the completion of a course is because that's not where the areas of abuse occurred. Really, it's about the minimum time frame. And in that regard, the NCAA doesn't prescribe what a minimum time frame has to be, nor do we dictate what the measuring stick is, if you will, for example. It's not a prescriptive number of minutes, hours, weeks, terms, etc. We just want to know that the school of the program has some quality control mechanisms of its own in place to ensure that students can't race through the course in an academically unsound time frame. And those two things actually work together. The time frame for the course and the ability for the teacher to provide instructive interaction based on student assessments really does go hand-in-hand during that review process. And we very much look at it as a holistic review process to see how all those pieces fit together. What about pathways-type approaches or project-based learning-type approaches? Do those fit into the criteria when it comes to the NCAA approval process? Probably baked into a different part of the conversation. So project-based learning really is more about the curriculum and the assessment than it is the instruction, at least in our view. So in our parlance, we have traditional schools and non-traditional schools, traditional programs, non-traditional programs. And, And really the distinction there is what role might technology play in delivering the content and or assessing student work? We see project based learning in both models in traditional learning environments, as well as the the digital learning environments. And this is an opportunity actually to talk about a a complete overhaul that we did to our criteria for review for all core courses back in 2016. We took several steps back to examine what's happening in the field with relation to curriculum and assessment as it relates to college readiness. We did an exhaustive literature review, interacted with a number of researchers, hired a consultant, to try to make sure that we were aligned with what was happening in the field in terms of, again, the interaction between curriculum delivery and assessment of student work. And project-based learning was a big part of that. Where we landed was we we adopted a, a modified version of Webb's depth of knowledge levels to help us get to this idea of rigor and to focus on the application of knowledge through higher order thinking and skills. And so what it did is it allowed us to, in a way, open up types of courses that we approve. So for example, historically, the NCAA has been very much against approving career and technical education courses. That changed in 2016. And now we have specific criteria for review that exist that help us ensure that the content of the course and the assessments within the course, regardless of its project-based assessment or traditional forms of assessment, as long as there's that application of knowledge through extended thinking or strategic thinking that goes beyond basic recall of fact, we're often in a position to be able to approve those types of courses. That's really helpful. I appreciate that overview and and also how you approached it and also how you've morphed the program based on the changes that are happening in the field. Because I think a lot of people might think, oh, it's a traditional process. No, it's not because it has to change as the field moves forward. And it's really helpful to hear that process and how you've 
approached how to change it. It's really, really good to hear that. To be clear, the NCA has not always been the most responsive to changes in the field of secondary education. And I think the work that took place during the 2015-16 year, credit goes to the high school community for reaching out to us and sharing with us the observations and concerns that they had. Credit goes to the committee, uh, the high school review committee that oversees the work that our staff does and and directed us to take on this project of really understanding uh, where the field was moving uh, as it relates to college readiness. And so we're always in this process of continuous improvement and focused on balancing innovation in the field with also guarding against the ways that bad actors might still want to try to take shortcuts and abuse different learning models. The next question comes out of the shift in models that is happening where the traditional schools might have a homegrown online program or they might partner with an online program to offer some kind of a blended model. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the question is around how does the NCAA determine what is a quote-unquote online course in a traditional high school, given the amount of hybrid and fully online classes that are taught at that traditional school. And oftentimes, the course is not coded any differently in the student management system. So how does MCAA differentiate based on that lack of information? Yeah, Catherine, is it okay if we talk about those as two separate questions? Yeah, of course. So the first question is related to the emerging number of schools and districts offering online and or hybrid types of programs. And this is certainly a shift that we have observed as well. Many schools and districts now offer either a district-wide online program that is open to all students in a given district. Some high schools go on their own to create an online or blended learning program. And I think that the biggest, most striking observation is that schools are very diverse in terms of the needs that they are trying to meet in creating an online or blended program. We see some schools and districts who see online learning as a competitive necessity, meaning that in order to retain students in their district, they must create an online option for students or they will lose headcount, which means they lose funding. And so they invest heavily in an online program. And when I say invest heavily, they're investing not only dollars into the LMS, but they're also investing time into instructional professional development, investing a lot of time into the policies, procedures, expectations of the teachers, and helping make sure that students know that, hey, this is not our district's easy class. This is just a different format, but the courses are still going to be just as rigorous as what you have in the traditional setting. So, you know, we, we see that. And that's, that's one model that's meeting the needs of a population in one area. But we also see on the other end, schools and districts that are implementing programs that candidly, and this is usually their words, not ours, they're trying to get kids through their system as quickly and inexpensively as they can. There are a lot of competing demands, graduation rate issues, and the way that that impacts accountability and, and letter school letter grades and, and such. And, and so those end up being the, the programs that typically have very low levels of rigor, low levels of oversight, low levels of instructional interaction, and then everything in between. 
for our purpose, we review them all and we hold them all to the same standard, which we mentioned earlier. The role of the instructor, the teacher has to teach and the student has to be able to complete the course in a time frame that's academically sound according to that school's policies and procedures. Thanks, Nick. The next question has to do with traditional classrooms. So the NCAA doesn't have any information on whether a student had a poor classroom experience in a traditional school and doesn't attempt to determine that either, which makes sense because it would be impossible to do that. But given that reality, what is the rationale for looking at online courses in particular? There are good and bad teachers, good and bad learning environments in both traditional and non-traditional settings. And I should probably say too here that we understand that the word non-traditional is a bit of a misnomer now. That word was born 19 years ago and remains a part of our vernacular. For lack of a better term, we still use traditional and non-traditional to differentiate between traditional classroom models and those that are incorporating digital learning. So we understand that there can be good and bad teachers, good and bad learning environments, And that's why we're always really careful to say that our processes are not at all intended nor designed to ensure quality. We have mechanisms in place to ensure the validity of schools and programs in both traditional and non-traditional settings. They just look a little bit different. In both settings, we're reviewing what are the school policies and operations. Probably the best way to think about it is what are the expectations of teachers in both environments and what are the expectations for the curriculum, the instruction, and the assessment in both models. We do recognize that that there is a higher propensity for abuse in the models that are more heavily supported by digital learning. So the fully online and in some cases the blended learning environments just by nature of the way that those levers behind the scenes can be pulled to allow different levels of rigor, different timeframes for completion, et cetera. And so we do have a little bit of different set of requirements there to address the abuses that we saw. And I think it's probably a good opportunity to say there also that these requirements weren't requirements that we just dreamt up one day because we were fearful that this online learning environment would be abused. The abuse came first. And then the question became, then now what do we do? That was where we went there. But to your point, Catherine, there are instances in traditional settings where there is abuse and ways that people want to try to get students through the systems in unsound ways. And and we do, like I said earlier, have mechanisms to address those environments as well. Thanks, Nick. That's really helpful to understand. One other question that came up is, what is the plan to adjust to the realities of teachers putting their work onto a learning management system, a practice that often makes face-to-face interactions less common or necessary? Sure. When we think about the frequency and the nature of student-teacher interaction, first of all, there is no requirement that we have that the interaction be synchronous or and certainly not face-to-face. We understand that asynchronous interaction is a part of, of these learning models. We say that, that frequency needs to be time-based, competency-based, or a combination of the two so that there's regularity to the interaction between the student and the instructor. And the nature of those interactions, we do understand that in many environments, the content that's being delivered is being delivered through the LMS. 
whether it is a prepackaged uh, curriculum being purchased through a vendor or something that's more homegrown that a teacher has placed on an LMS. And in many cases, the content being delivered is through that LMS, not from the teacher standing in front of a room. That's fine. We don't require that the teacher delivers the content. All we require is that the teacher is interacting for the purposes of teaching and evaluating and providing feedback. And so one of the models that's most common and that we approve is a model where content, for example, is delivered through the LMS. The student then engages in a series of either practice assessments or formative assessments Some may be graded, some may not be graded, but on those assessments that are graded, the real meat of the interaction between the student and the instructor comes after that assessment. This interaction can occur not only for struggling students, but for students who are excelling. Um, So if you have a student that struggles, I think it's obvious where teachers can step in to provide adequate support for that student before they move forward. But even for students that are excelling and doing well, there's an expectation from our perspective that the teacher is still engaging with that student in an instructive manner. Hey, I like the way you developed this idea here. That's exceeding expectations. Now, the next time you write, here's another way you might want to think about framing your argument. Those types of interactions are the types that, again, they don't have to be synchronous. They don't have to be face-to-face, but that is a form of interaction that we happily approve. Thanks for explaining that, Nick. When you were talking about the opportunities that you had over the years to change the process as you saw the field of education changing, are there formal and or informal opportunities for the field to be in touch, maybe even through the approval process or even through, you mentioned before, committees that were brought together that gave you feedback? Are there opportunities for providing feedback and what are those and how does that work? Yes, that's a great question. The changes that we have made over the years, I should clarify, are related to the review process itself, not the actual requirements. So the requirements that exist today are the same ones that were adopted in 2010. We have clarified the criteria for review based on some of those changes in the field. In some ways, that's at the staff level. My colleagues and I paying attention to what's happening in the field, being responsive, trying to be responsive in any way to what's happening in the field. But in terms of folks in the the high school community that want to provide feedback, I think it's important to know a couple of things. One is that there is an uh, an entity called the NCAA High School Review Committee. It's a nine-member committee made up of five representatives from the college side and four representatives from the high school side, and we have an ex-officio member as well. So one of our high school reps is a longtime online learning leader. He happens to be the chair of our committee right now. And our ex-officio committee member is also an expert in the field of online learning. And so we rely heavily on their voices as we go through our processes. Even as we hear if a school appeals a decision that we have to that committee, the committee's decision informs whether we continue to make the same types of decisions or whether we change those types of decisions. And so that is a mechanism through which the push and the pull of where the review process lies uh, takes place. If, If folks are looking for a formal way to make recommendations, probably to the members of the high school review committee, and folks can just Google NCAA high school review committee to find the roster and the names of the folks that are on that committee. I think it's probably important 
important to note. We do, like I mentioned earlier, attend online learning professional development events and make ourselves available after the sessions that we lead as a way for folks to ask questions and uh, provide feedback as well that that we, we bring back home with us. Thanks so much, Nick, for answering that question. I have another one. When a school has been approved, what does the process look like for ongoing monitoring of that school? Yeah, that's a great question. So we put our trust in schools during the review process that they are doing what they tell us that they're doing. And if a school or program is approved, they're approved and there is no ongoing monitoring of that school or program. There have been times, however, when after a school has been reviewed and approved where we have encountered information showing that the school isn't doing what it said it would do. And that's where we encounter problems. So, I mean, this uh, literally just happened this past week. A university called to let us know that a student who they were recruiting, the majority of their high school coursework was taken through an approved program. And those courses were all, each of them completed in a matter of days. So again, this is an approved program where a student basically completed their entire high school coursework in courses that were done in a matter of days each. So when this type of information comes to us, we will place that school back in review to understand what really is happening and then determine the appropriate steps from there. Nobody likes that, right? There has to be some checks and balances. But this is true in all learning environments from our perspective, traditional schools, non-traditional schools. You know, our our policies and procedures do grant us the authority to do randomized audits and randomized checks. We are not in a place where that's a part of what we do. And so we do. We put our trust in schools that they do what they tell us that they're doing. And once we approve a school or a program or a course, we all move on. And again, unless someone provides credible information, actionable information showing that some something is happening that's different than what was approved, you know, obviously in those settings, we have to take some type of action or response. Yeah, of course. I think it's expected for that to happen. And we appreciate that you do that. So I have one more question about the field and how it's continuing to change, as you know. Um, So what kinds of issues um, have you run into recently where something you've established doesn't really apply anymore. And can you talk through the, the change process on your side? I know we've, we've talked a bit about uh, another change that you had made a number of years back, but mm. what about now? Is there anything that you're, you're grappling with now that you're working through? Yeah, that's a great question. It's an opportunity to say something that probably sounds absurd. We find ourselves in a place where we have to be reactive, not proactive, meaning that it is not appropriate for the NCAA to be the tail that wags the dog. It's not appropriate for us to be out there telling schools and districts and states how to design courses or or programs. What we strive to do is to be reactive and responsive to the changes that are happening in the field. So I did mention earlier, you know, career tech courses used to be strictly prohibited and and now our criteria for review allow for certain career and technical education courses to be approved. You know, I I think of ESL coursework, English as a second language coursework. There used to be a, a requirement that 
ESL courses in the subject area of English specifically could only be used in a student's certification if it went through a, a very specific student level review where staff would review the curriculum, the instruction, and the assessments that the student completed in that course to ensure that it was a college prep English course. Demographic changes in the country combined with instructional changes, especially in California, Texas, and Florida, meant that there were schools had sections of English ESL courses where all of the students in the class were ESL students taking courses in the subject area of English. They were all working on the same material and it was all college preparatory. It was all equivalent to the regular English one course across the hallway. But we weren't because of our, our legislation in a position where we could approve those and put those course titles on the high school's list. So we took this issue to the high school review committee saying we, we want to change the legislation to allow us to approve those types of courses wholesale so that students don't have to submit that student-specific information. They, The committee worked with other committees within the governance structure to propose a revision to the legislation, and that passed a few years ago. So that was something that, that we were really happy about, that we, again, was trying to be responsive to changes that were happening in the field. I think another example, uh, again, this is a byproduct of the revision to our criteria for review for core courses back in 2016, but we used to have a very strict prohibition against art history courses because it was not considered a, a social science course. But because of the way that the criteria were rewritten, there are cases where art history courses that are taught in the social sciences can be approved as a social science course for NCAA purposes. And so, you know, that may seem like a small thing, but it's an example of we would attend conferences and events and people would say, are you kidding the NCAA? You guys don't approve AP art history? And we'd say, well, we, we can't because our criteria don't allow for it. But after that revision in 2016, there was an expansion of the types of courses that we can approve in our process. Thanks, Nick. Is there a way that we can go back to that question about when a school does not designate a course to be online? I was just at a, a conference for school counselors two weeks ago, ASCA, doing a presentation. And afterward, a counselor came up and said, hey, we have an online program, but we don't designate it on the transcript any differently than our regular courses. What do we do? And that's a question that comes up a lot. The NCAA is headquartered in Indianapolis, Indiana. And we know, for example, that Indiana Department of Education gave guidance to schools saying, if you believe that your online courses are equivalent to your regular courses, it's up to you whether you you choose to designate them differently or not. Our position is we do hope that schools and districts will designate these courses as being different only because the worst thing that could happen is that a student enrolls in and completes courses that cannot be approved and no one finds out about it until it's too late. Now, we don't know what we don't know, meaning that if there isn't a designation of any kind on a transcript, we're none the wiser. But colleges and universities will sometimes tell us Hey, coach was talking to the kid last week and the kid said he was doing five online courses this spring on top of his seven period schedule. And we looked and that high school doesn't show that. What do we do? And, and that puts us in a position where we have to then reach out to the high school to initiate that review process. And I guess the long story short there is, is that the transparency of what the courses are helps 
with guidance, making sure that students are enrolling in courses that will count. Obviously, we, we want schools and programs to be approved, but in the cases that they're not, we certainly don't want a student to be the one suffering and caught not being able to meet the requirements and didn't know about it until the very end. It's really meaningful that a counselor and other educators will come to you and say, look, this part of the process on our end needs to change, especially if it's not conducive with what you guys are doing at NCAA. So it's nice to see the back and forth conversations happening to really change it in a way that's meaningful for both sides, you know. Yeah, and I'll tell you, because of my background in college admission, I've been plugged in to uh, an organization called NACAC, the National Association for College Admission Counseling, for 17 years. And uh, as I interact with college admission offices, they, they say the same thing for different reasons. They don't know what they don't know when they're reviewing transcripts for the purposes of admitting students. And if they admit a student and, and then the student shows up on campus and, and isn't proficient, then there's a question of, well, wait, does this transcript not represent what we thought it did? And that's a challenge for them separate from us. But I guess the point is that, you know, they, they share same, the same sentiment of we ask for more transparency on the transcript, not less. Right, right. So anything else that you can think of that you would like to bring up? I don't think so. Thank you so much for your time in sharing more about the NCAA approval process. It has been a really meaningful conversation and will be so appreciated by the field. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, Catherine. Again, thanks for the invitation and thanks for the work that Evergreen has done over the years with the Keeping Pace Report. It's been a, a nice resource for us to use as we interact with our colleges and universities. Yeah, we just started a new publication called Snapshot. And it's part of the Digital Learning Collaborative. So definitely keep an eye out for that as it took Keeping Pace Reports place. And that just had its first publication earlier this year in April. And so it'll be published at the Digital Learning Annual Conference every year. Got it. Thanks so much again to Nick for joining us today. From all of us at the Digital Learning Collaborative and Evergreen Education Group, thank you so much for listening. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at the DLCEDU and at the DLC's Digital Learning Annual Conference. Learn more about the DLC at digitallearningcolab.com. We'll be back soon with another episode of Conversations in Digital Learning. Enjoy your day.